0: Thank you Ella, thank you Gareth and thank you Dave for the magnificent choice of music. We're going to read from the Bible and in the seats in front of you you'll see um, a black Bible if you'd like to follow with me. Get the Bible out and we're going to be reading from Acts chapter 8 beginning at verse 26 can be found on page 1099. I'll just pause for those who want to get their place. Acts 8, starting at verse 26. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, go south to the road, the desert road, that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. So he started out, And on his way he met an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official in charge of all the treasury of Kandiki, which means the queen of the Ethiopians. This man had gone to Jerusalem to worship and on his way home was sitting in his chariot reading the book of Isaiah, the prophet. The spirit told Philip, go to that chariot and stay near it. Then Philip ran up to the chariot and heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. Do you understand what you are reading? Philip asked. How can I? He said, unless someone explains it to me. So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. This was the passage of scripture the eunuch was reading. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter, as a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. The eunuch asked Philip, tell me, please, who is the prophet talking about? "'Himself or someone else?' "'Then Philip began with the very passage of Scripture "'and told him the good news about Jesus. "'As they travelled along the road, "'they came to some water, and the eunuch said, "'Look, here is water. "'What can stand in the way of my being baptized? "'He gave orders to stop the chariot. "'Then both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water,' And Philip baptised him. When they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away. And the eunuch did not see him again, but went on his way rejoicing. Philip, however, appeared at Azotus and travelled about preaching the gospel in all the towns until he reached Caesarea. Caesarea.
1: Thank you, Kath. Good morning, everyone. Are you happy? Good to be in church? Are you alive? Good. I feel good. I'm excited. It's a great passage we're looking at today, and I'm very excited to preach it. And I just want to tip my hat to two people. One is to Ben Adamo. Uh, He suggested this passage, and I remember I was thinking we'd just do some gospel stories about transformed lives And he said, how about this one? I said, Yep, great choice. And Ben's actually preaching on it tonight at 6.30 at Night Church. And also Tim Keller, who uh, gave me some great insights. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you we can be here. Such a wonderful time of the day to sit and to be your people and have fellowship. But importantly, we pray as we look at your word that you'd speak to us. And Lord, that you would transform our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. I often say this, at the heart of the Christian faith, there is a message of hope and forgiveness and love. It's an incredibly powerful message. It's a message that actually says God can change your life and transform you if you will come to Him in repentance and faith. Uh, We offer great news to the world. And you see this in this passage. Philip says he told the good news about Jesus. And we're in the holidays now. We've had John first term. We're going to be doing 2 Samuel, which is going to be a great series coming up. But we're just stopping to look at the story of different people's lives who were transformed by the gospel, uh, really to encourage us to learn from it and there's great things to learn from here and I'm going to get straight into the passage we just had read by my darling wife Kath um, about a story of a man whose life is turned upside down. It's a fascinating story, Um, it's not often preached on, And in many ways, uh, we probably could have spoken on this passage two weeks ago with AfroFest because you could say this is the African gospel in the New Testament. Uh, It's the story of an African man coming to faith. Now, is he the first African man or the second? Well, Simon of Cyrene who carried Jesus' cross may have been the first. He was a black African, we understand. But this is kind of the first guy who comes out of Africa, up to Jerusalem and goes back to Africa with the gospel. And it's really fascinating because, you see, it's a story of an upper-class, well-educated man who's really from the top of the tree, uh, in terms of his world, who comes seeking God and he's brought to faith by, really, a guy who is from the lower to middle classes. There's a great gap, culturally, uh, between these two people in the story, uh, the Ethiopian uh, and Philip. But secondly, it's also a story that's of the most unlikely encounter, Um, Philip really doesn't know what he's doing, he just gets told to go and in this act of kind of divine providence, he meets the Ethiopian. He, He didn't plan this, he just gets instructed by an angel and he goes and it's an incredible story of God's divine sovereign will at work to bring the gospel to, I take it, not just this African man but really the beginning of Africa and it's also profoundly a story of transformation, a man whose identity would have been wrapped up in who he was and his position and title, leaves a very different person after his encounter with Philip and his hearing of the Gospel. So if you've got your Bibles open, let's have a look, page 1099, 1099. I'm starting at verse 26 where Kath read from and it says, Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, go south to the road, the desert road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. And so you see at the very beginning, this is a God moment. It's a God encounter. The Spirit, via this angel, basically tells Philip, you're going to go down. Now, Philip doesn't know what he's doing, and I think it would have been quite imposing and threatening what he actually has to do, and we'll come to that. But he is sent, and with obedience he goes. Verse 27, so he started out, and on his way he met an Ethiopian eunuch an important official in charge of all the treasury of the Kandaki, which means Queen of the Ethiopians. Uh, Let me just give a bit of context to that. Uh, In Ethiopia, which would be modern-day Sudan, uh, it's not the Ethiopia that we know, it's up further north, probably about a thousand miles from Jerusalem, uh, the king of that country really saw himself as kind of a spiritual figure and, if I can say, the secular matters of state were beneath him. He spent his time, if I can say, in spiritual engagement. And so, what he did was he left the secular matters of actually running the country to his wife, and she effectively was the CEO of the country. He was kind of the religious leader of the country, and his wife, who was the queen of the Ethiopians, Kandaki, um, she employed this Ethiopian eunuch to be the CFO for the country. He's the treasurer. He's in charge of the whole lot. Uh, He's a very significant man no ordinary guy that we're looking at today and he's made it from a career point as high as you could have gone in that country um, outside of having family ties uh, obviously to the king and the question you've got to stop and ask is this, um, why does this man travel all this way to go to Jerusalem? I mean it's a very long way to go, it's about a thousand miles, He leaves behind his job. Now in that day and age, I suspect that may have put his job in jeopardy to some extent with other suitors who might have wanted to rise up and climb above him. And what Luke records in the book of Acts is he went there to worship. And the first thing I want us to see about this man is there's a sense deeply and strongly that he is going there seeking to know God and to worship God. Now, where he's come from, absolutely they would have had significant religious practices and activities, but obviously it hasn't cut it for him and he's now heading to Jerusalem. Now, we don't know why he's gone there. Uh, Was he someone who had some Jewish origin because the Jews scattered all around the Mediterranean and down into the upper parts of Africa? Maybe. Uh, It doesn't appear to be the case. It might have been the case. What we do know is he goes there to worship. There's a sense of which... He wants to find God and he goes to worship God up there, a dangerous, long journey. But he is compelled because in his life, in his heart, he's not founded in Ethiopia. And I often say deep within every human heart is this reality that we've been wired to be in relationship with God. Deep down we believe there typically there is something greater than us that gives meaning to our existence. Religion is a universal phenomenon in the world. Wherever you go, it'll be in different forms and shades and in different styles, but everywhere people worship. Now, typically in Australia, we don't often see people worshiping God, but they actually do worship, they worship lifestyle, they worship this creation. Uh, There is a deep part of us that looks to the other for significance and this man is no different. Let me just say this, um, St Matthew's is a great place, Uh, one of the names it's known by is the Church of the Open Door and we welcome everyone to come in. And let me say, if you've come in this morning and I know this happens regularly and you're someone who is seeking God and you're wanting to find Him, we're really glad you're here Uh, and we want this to be a place where people can come and with gentleness and respect, come and actually find out what the Christian faith is about and who God is. Let me also just say to our regulars, as you read this passage, I think it should encourage us. Uh, There's no doubt, uh, as Gareth prayed, that there is a rising secularism within Australia. And I know for some Christians there's a feeling or a sense of being on the defence or being defensive about our faith. But secularism will never deliver meaningful spiritual reality to people's lives. It's one of my deep beliefs. It actually cannot. And so people will be empty in this world and will be seeking something to make sense of the money, the achievements, the experiences that can only deliver so much before an emptiness typically take hold. And we need to be aware that God is still at work here in Australia and in Manly and drawing people here. Every week I meet someone who just gets drawn in and we need to be aware that this is the state of our nation, it's our experience here, it's the privilege of being where we are geographically. And we need to welcome people in and care for them and help them find the reality that we know in the Lord Jesus. This man was seeking God but secondly, he was culturally and religiously excluded. Think further with me about this African eunuch in that day and age and going to the city of Jerusalem to worship. He was racially different but he was also significantly different in terms of his uh, state of being, if I can put it that way. He was a eunuch and if I can speak plainly, he'd been castrated. Um, This was the price tag he had paid to get in as a royal official is what is most likely... Uh, the eunuchs were the ones who often were most trusted and led into the inner circle. And so he's climbed to the top, hugely significant though, at great cost. And I don't say this to be sensational or to be offensive, but you see, he'd been sexually altered and that had enabled him to climb the rungs to the highest echelons of power. And I say this to point out that from a religious point of view... When he arrived at Jerusalem, he would have been absolutely on the outer. Now, in Jerusalem and in Judaism, the thing to note about eunuchs was this. Uh, he was barred from active participation in the Jewish rites of the day and particularly with the temple. Now, let's just have a look at this verse on the screen. It's Deuteronomy 23. Um, I often wince as a male when I read this. No one who has been emasculated by crushing or cutting may enter the assembly of the Lord. I always, oh dear, that's it. <laughs> Forgive me for saying that, but um, that's his experience. And you see, what Deuteronomy said was, well, this man actually can't enter the temple. And so after travelling over a thousand miles to get to Jerusalem, which would have taken days and days, the bitter irony is this, he couldn't even go in. And you see, within Judaism in the time... Um, stemming from the book of Leviticus, which we looked at last year, there were numbers of rules to communicate the reality that God is holy, He is other, He is pure. And the rules were there to communicate that you can't just walk into His presence as someone who is sinful. You need to have your sin dealt with if you're to be in the presence of God. And some of the rules related to your physical state of being for both men and women... And I won't go into the details of that, but some of the rules said you could have a period of days where you could not come in and then after you were clean, you could come in. But there were some other sets of rules that actually had a permanent injunction on you and it said you can never come in. And one of those applied to eunuchs, never allowed into the temple to worship God. No one who has been emasculated or cr- by crushing or cutting may enter the assembly of the Lord. So the eunuch goes to all this trouble and it's interesting, Luke, in recording this story, the most common phrase to describe him is not the treasurer but it's the eunuch. Well actually, he couldn't actually enter into the worship that he was seeking. Third thing to note is not just culturally excluded, not just seeking but self-made. He has made it to the top in his country. To be the treasurer of the country is not like to be the treasurer of Scott Morrison. We've got the Westminster system of governance, which is a great thing. Uh, It's got checks and balances. Uh, Morrison can't just do what he wants. This man could have, within reason. He really only answered to the Queen. And he had enormous power that he would have wielded in that day. And he's made it to the top, but at significant cost. Not just that he was a eunuch, but you see, in our society we typically get our significance through a number of things. Uh, It can be through our achievements, be it at work, in terms of our earning or our status and our titles. Uh, It can be with our roles in the community, that, you know, we're president of this or whatever. Uh, But if you went to the Middle East and if you went to Africa, a person's significance was hugely tied up with the family status. And I know with Africans, and I had a number of Africans I studied with, and I was kind of shocked when they told me this, when I had or uh, well, I didn't have but my wife Kathy, had our first child. Um, but when we together had our first child, I never forget Josiah coming up and congratulating me that now I was a man. And I just thought this was an awful thing to say, um, because I felt for those who couldn't have children. But yet there was a culture there that expressed the reality that your status is tied up significantly with family. And see, this man had spurned all of that to get to the top. He had no family. He was a eunuch. And he had no possibility of a legacy through his sons and daughters. And there is something significant about building a dynasty, which is what you would do in Africa in terms of your family tree was also your social security. Well he'd made his name by climbing to the top but there was no sense of dynasty from him. And this man is returning home. I think there would have been a sense of disappointment and he meets Philip. So how has he transformed? Well, in simple terms, it's the gospel of our Lord Jesus and it's a very powerful transformation that takes place. We read on, have a look at verse 28. On his way home, uh, he was sitting in the chariot reading the book of Isaiah the prophet. So he's not just made it to the th- he's, a, he's a learned man and we know from the actual text that you've got here in the book of Acts, it's the Greek version of the Old Testament which is called the LXX, it's not the Hebrew version and so he's fluent in Greek. And here he is, he's reading the Greek version of the Old Testament. And the Spirit tells Philip, go to that chariot and stay near it. Now, I just want you to get you into Philip's shoes at this point, because Philip's just a a keen Christian, if I can put it that way. Um, We understand a gift kind of evangelistically, but it would have been very intimidating. This is second person in the country. There's an equivalent modern day of an entourage of probably six or ten blacks SUVs, travelling along, taking the treasurer back to his country. And the spirit goes, go talk to him. Now, I would find that intimidating. I don't know about you. And they're moving. So Philip runs up to the chariot and heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. Now, in that culture, you would read out loud. And you can just imagine Philip's there running (laughs) beside the entourage. And they're probably not going that quickly, but he's got to keep up with them. And he's probably peering over and looking. And, oh, you're reading Isaiah. Oh, cool. Um, (laughs) Now, it's fascinating um, one question changes everything. And I say that because you can make a profound difference in a person's life by simply asking one question. What's the question? Do you actually understand what you're reading, Philip Past? That's all he asks. He doesn't... Preach the gospel to him initially, he says, do you understand it? And I raise that because uh, one of our ministries, the Word One-to-One, is a ministry of wanting to get beside people to read the Bible with them and all you have to literally do is ask someone, has anyone ever explained the Bible to you? Would you like to find out? I'll come back to that. The Ethiopian replies, how can I, he said, unless someone explains it to me. So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. And so Philip has gone from running beside, I imagine he must have been fit, but anyway, into the chariot. There he is. And the passage of Scripture that the eunuch was reading is from Isaiah 53. Now this is a most profound passage. It is the gospel of the Old Testament, you could say. Now Isaiah is kind of the gospel of the Old Testament. And within Isaiah, you've got chapter 53, which is the most detailed profound description of Jesus' ministry of death and resurrection and the substitutionary atonement for our sins. Uh, I know that some Jewish believers, Messianic Jews, posted this passage up on some posts in the eastern suburbs where a lot of Jews live and they were criticised for putting up the New Testament because the Jews thought, who were reading it in the eastern suburbs, that this was the Christian literature and they said to them, no, this is actually our Jewish literature... So profound is the passage, Isaiah 53. And this is what he was reading, he was led like sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before a shearer is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? Just keep that verse in mind. For his life was taken from the earth. He was cut off. The eunuch asked Philip, tell me please, Who is the prophet talking about himself or is it someone else? Then Philip began with that very passage of scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. Now, as I said, the section of scripture the eunuch was reading is from the Old Testament prophet Isaiah. And Isaiah is divided in two halves, 1 to 39, 40 onwards. And he's in the second half that speaks of the servant of God, a servant of Israel who will come and rescue his people. And he's here... 53. Now I mention that because I'm going to mention about 56 and what also comes in the book of Isaiah. And it's the simplest of questions, do you understand what he's reading? And from this initial question comes a conversation and comes basically a one-on-one Bible study in the chariot. And Philip just sits there and explains from this passage and then he goes on to explain about Jesus and how Jesus fulfills this and the wonderful news of the Gospel. And if I can just stop again and I referred to people who may be here seeking, one of the wonderful ways of finding out about the Christian faith is actually just to read the Bible with someone one-to-one. And it's why we have a ministry called The Word One-to-One, and I'll just hold up a book that I read with a couple of people. It's been wonderful to do that, to just go through John's Gospel. And if you're here today and you think, gee, I'd like someone to do this with me like Philip did with the Ethiopian, we would love to help you. We'd love to connect you up with someone who is appropriate to just read through John's Gospel and have a look at what the Gospel message of Jesus is all about. And if you're here as someone who's a regular and you think, I'd like to be involved in that, please just let us know on the Connect card. Just put down, I'd like to find out about reading the Bible one-to-one on the Connect cards and Ben will be in touch. But back to Isaiah. This passage, Isaiah 53, describes a figure who will suffer and die for the sins of God's people. The verse before this, says this, We all like sheep have gone astray, each of us has turned to our own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And Phillips takes this passage and explains to him the wonder of who Jesus was and how he came and died for him, for us. And the punishment that we're due, well, the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. And it's amazing because when you think of this eunuch who had been crushed, literally, who was cut off from family, this passage speaks about the fact that Jesus was crushed for him. This passage speaks about Jesus was the one who was cut off from all of his descendants. This passage speaks of the punishment that was due him was actually taken by the Lord Jesus. And I suspect Philip would have probably taken him also further into Isaiah and read from 56. And if you want to have a look at Isaiah 56, let me just read you a few verses because it's really quite profound. Uh, 56 verse 3 says, Let no foreigner who is bound to the Lord say, the Lord will surely exclude me from his people. And let no eunuch complain, I'm only a dry tree. Now I read that because you see, he's just been excluded. He's come back from being excluded and... I think Philip would have read this. Now, I'm not sure, but I think this would have happened. Let me read you about actually what this means, that this Jesus dies for. There's no exclusion now. For this is what the Lord says, 56 verse 4, "'To the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose what pleases me and hold fast to my covenant, to them I'll give within my temple and its walls a memorial and a name better than sons and daughters. I'll give them an everlasting name that will endure forever.'" In other words, dear friend in the chariot, there's great news here. Isaiah speaks of one who will come, his name is Jesus, and speaks also that the impact of this will be no exclusion, even for eunuchs who feel cut off and have no descendants. In its walls a memorial and a name better than sons and daughters. And let me just say to those who are unable, be it they are single or married with our kids, I know there is a great pain and a great loss. But in the gospel, we actually find a greater family that we are part of. And it's one of the profound things about when church is working well, that we actually have family here. And this is what is being spoken of and a name that is better than sons and daughters that will endure as part of the family of God's people. Let's just stop and reflect on what happens in this story because you've got this man who is seeking but excluded but who's made it to the top and what you find is when he encounters this message of grace because that's what it is, a message of grace where God has sent his son to come and die in his place. This man is found. And it's profound. He's seeking, and now by God's grace he's found. And the order I've got there and how I've described that is exactly what's happened. He doesn't find God's grace, God's grace finds him. God sends his servant out to find him and bring this wonderful news. It's divinely orchestrated. I wonder what you thought of the tweet by Israel Folau three weeks ago, if I can speak about some contemporary issues. Now let me just say, his original tweet is well known, God's plan for homosexuals is hell. He did, two weeks later, explain in more detail, in a much better way, what he said. And I commend him, and and I was very encouraged by the way, his faith is more important than his sport. And he said... Incredibly committed Christian. But let me say I had significant problems with what he tweeted. Uh, I thought it was awful. And this is why. What you see in the Gospel is a message of grace. John 3.17 says these words, For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world but to save the world through him. And when you read Israel Folau's Trout, it just sounds like a condemning word. Jesus himself in John 10 says, I've come that you might have life. At the end of John's gospel, John 20 verse 31, John says, these things have been written so that you might know that Jesus is the Christ and the Son of God, and that by believing in his name, you will have not condemnation, but life. And he came into the world to bring life. And that life is offered to everyone, it includes the people who've been sexually altered, it includes people who struggle with their sexuality, it includes people who have different skin colours, it includes people who are greedy, it includes people who are substance abusers, it includes people who are rich, I mean we don't go and say, well if you're an alcoholic, hell, if you're an adulterer, hell, this is not the gospel. The gospel is a word of grace to the world and it invites people to come and receive grace And forgiveness at the hand of the one who died for them on the cross. Whoever we are, we must not condemn people. Because Jesus did not come in the world to do that. He came in the world to save people. Secondly, the gospel includes you. I don't know how you would feel if you've had a thousand mile journey only to find you're not allowed in. And I don't know what mood he would have been in. It's fascinating that he's still reading, poring over it, thinking, what is this about? As he goes home. But the profound thing about the gospel is it says, actually, as you come to faith in Christ, you get welcomed in. Whoever you are. Whatever skin colour you've got. You see, religion typically excludes people because it says, if you want my religion, you must become culturally like me. And you see, the Christian faith, based on the gospel of grace, actually says the opposite. And because of that, it's the only worldwide diverse religion. Becoming a Christian does not mean taking on a particular cultural cultural expression. You see, most world religions have most of their followers close geographically to where the religion began. I don't know if you've thought about this. Uh, I was reading this, it's from scholar Richard Borkham With Islam, most of the Islamic faith is practiced in what's called the 40-20 window, uh, in terms of the latitudes, which is the Middle East and Asia. Now, with Buddhism, it's in East Asia and Southeast Asia, with Hinduism it's in India. Now why is that? Because inevitably the religion and the culture get tied together and cannot be separated. And so there's a whole way of life culturally that gets wrapped up religiously in how you practice your beliefs. Now Christianity is actually the opposite, Uh, When you look at the spread of Christianity it's very different, let me explain, Uh, 90% of Muslims live in one part of the world, Middle East, North Africa, South Asia, 88% of Buddhists live in East Asia, 98% of Hindus live in India. But with the Christian faith, you have this geographic spread, 25% of Christians live in Europe, 25% live in Central and Southern America, 22% live in Africa, 15% in Asia, 12 to 15% in North America. And Richard Borkham, who wrote the book uh, called uh, The Bible and Mission, writes this, Christianity is the only major religion that is spread out. Almost certainly Christianity exhibits greater cultural diversity than any other religion. You see, why is that? Because to become a Christian does not mean taking on a particular culture. In fact, the gospel transcends culture and transforms culture. But it doesn't call you to a particular culture. You see, this man did not have to become a Jew to become a follower of Jesus. He doesn't have to go back to Jerusalem to find peace with God. He finds it outside the city on a dusty road traveling back home to Africa. As I was writing this message, my prayer was this. I pray that when people come here to St. Matthew's, they don't think Christianity is a Western white people's religion for the middle and upper classes. May God save us from that. We've just had AfroFest here two weeks ago and we had a wonderful group of Africans amongst us. Now, one of the reasons I got Dave to bring his African team here and have Afrofest at St. Matthew's was this simple reason, I want us to experience the Christian faith from a completely different culture and realise they've got stuff we haven't got and stop what can often creep in a cultural ascendancy. And who didn't love it last week or the other week? I mean, the Africans do Christian joy better than anyone I've ever seen. I've never seen so many of us dancing in church. We weren't dancing this week. I mean, we were having a great time, but you know, it was fantastic two weeks ago. Because you see, the the gospel is not owned by one culture. It goes to every culture and transforms those cultures. Lastly, this man was remade. Note what happens at the end. After hearing the gospel, he says, well, what can stand in the way of me being baptized? Now, let me just explain the profundity about what is happening with this request. It's not just saying I want a religious rite. You see, when you get baptized in the early church and when we do it down the harbour, there are two profound symbols that are taking place. The first is it's a symbol of death. And a person, when they go in the water, is being pushed under symbolic of the fact that their old life dies now i always joke with the guys i baptize the one i hold down the longest i think is the biggest sinner (laughs) okay just to emphasize the point it's a death experience to an old way of life and when they're raised up out of the water it's symbolic of a new life raised up With Christ. What's happened to this African Ethiopian eunuch? He's actually got a new identity, discovered on a dusty road as he heard about the Lord Jesus, that is now in Christ. And he goes back to Ethiopia, yes with all the trappings of wealth and power, but now remade And called to follow Jesus. You see, if the gospel is a message to come and receive Christ by faith, it's also a gospel of repentance that says you turn around and you now take on Christ as your Lord and Saviour. And you die to an old way of life. It's what baptism was symbolising, and you're now raised up into a new life. It's not by works. But it's how we now live and you see the gospel calls people from all cultures and all backgrounds all ethnicities all orientations to come to Christ and receive grace and forgiveness for all of our sin and to find a new identity in Christ that is to be transformed into the likeness of the Lord Jesus and reflect the holiness of God You see, the temple was the place where you experienced the holiness of God, now that should be in the church and our bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit. We are to be reflecting the reality that God is holy in how we live, as possessors of His Holy Spirit, raised up in Christ. The call of the Gospel is not to become a Western Christian, an African Christian, an Asian Christian, it's to be remade like Jesus... And it's to affect everything, how we use our money, how we express our lifestyle, our sexual ethics. And we find the filling in of the details of that in the New Testament in terms of what it means to be faithful and holy and godly. But when you receive the gospel of grace and you get included in his family, our response is to be like this African man, baptised and to go into the world, transformed... In the image of Christ. Let's stop and pray. I wonder this morning, how is God, by His grace, transforming your identity? Have you actually come to that point of receiving His grace and reaching out to the Lord Jesus Christ and inviting Him in to be your Lord and Saviour? If you have, are you being remade into His image and reflecting the holiness and the glory of God in your life now, remade in His image? Let's have a moment to stop and to pray. Well, let me ask you this morning, if God's been calling you to come to Him because you've been seeking Him, I want to give a moment to receive him as your Lord and Saviour today. I invite you to pray with me and receive Christ just the way this Ethiopian man received him that day. Just pray this quietly. I come to you, Lord Jesus, this day. I come as someone who is sinful and broken. But I come knowing... You have died for me on the cross, for my sins. Please forgive me and remake me in your image. This day, I want to live for you. In Jesus' name, Amen. Well, friends, if you want to... Find out more about reading the Bible one-to-one, please put on the Connect card. If this morning you've prayed, please let us know on the Connect card or come and speak to one of the staff. If you would like prayer after the service, for anything that we've touched on today, I'd invite you to come forward and to have uh, prayer with the prayer team. We'd love to pray with whatever needs you've got that you may have brought with you this day. But let's stand as we have our final song, put our Connect cards in the basket. For those who are members and don't give electronically, please do be generous as the plate comes around.